I will be reading to you from the New Testament of the Bible, Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. Herod was king of Judea. During the time he was ruling, there was a priest named Zechariah. He belonged to a group of priests named after Abijah. His wife Elizabeth also came from the family line of Aaron. Both of them did what was right in the sight of God. They obeyed all the Lord's commands and rules faithfully. But they had no children because Elizabeth was not able to have any, and they were both very old. One day, Zachariah's group was on duty. He was serving as a priest in God's temple. He happened to be chosen in the usual way to go into the temple of the Lord. There, he was supposed to burn incense. The time came for this to be done. All who had gathered to worship were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah. The angel was standing at the right side of the incense altar. When Zechariah saw him, he was amazed and terrified. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will have a child. It will be a boy, and you must name him John. He will be a joy and delight to you. His birth will make many people very glad. He will be important in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or other such drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will prepare the way for the Lord. He will have the same spirit and power that Elijah had. He will bring peace between parents and their children. He will teach people who don't obey to be wise and do what is right. In this way, he will prepare a people who are ready for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is old too. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will have to be silent. You will not be able to speak until after John is born. That's because you did not believe my words. They will come true at the time God has chosen. During that time, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the temple. They wondered why he stayed there so long. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple. They knew this because he kept gesturing to them. He still could not speak. When his time of service was over, he returned home. After that, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. She stayed at home for five months. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has been kind to me. He has taken away my shame among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, If you didn't notice, the angel Gabriel is full of sass in this passage. And Mary did a great job with the sass. Good morning, everybody. The first Sunday of Advent. This is my favorite. This is my favorite passage in the Bible, I think. Especially my at least my favorite passage in the New Testament. And so I'm 
super excited. This is actually, too, the very first sermon that I ever gave, decade plus ago, was on this passage. And I found the manuscript. And turns out, I still believe the same stuff I believed back then. So that's good. Uh, it is Advent. This is your uh, this is your beginning here, but let's get and talk to each other about Advent for just a moment. Advent is a season in the church year uh, that precedes Christmas, and I feel like unless you grew up in a tradition, maybe Episcopal, Anglican, Presbyterian, one of the one of the denominations where there are kind of high holy holidays, that Advent might have been something that got passed over, just you never talked about at all. Uh, you've got Christmas and you've got Easter and then everything else is just kind of Sunday. At least that's the way that I grew up. But there are these uh, rhythms to the church calendar and Advent is the beginning. It's kind of the first beat. And it sets the tone for everything else that happens in the church calendar. Advent is a four-Sunday season that is meant to be about repentance, to prepare yourself uh, for the coming of Christ. And so... It takes at least four Sundays to really mm, begin to get ready for what incarnation means. Incarnation is a fancy word for when God takes on flesh in the person of Jesus the Christ and shows up in our world. And it happens, and every time it happens, it is surprising, right? Every time that I come to this story, it shocks me, but it takes a few weeks of me preparing for that encounter. So that's Advent. Advent is a season of waiting and of patience. And I don't know about you, but I am not a super patient person. I'm thinking like, just noticed uh, Stephanie and Chris back here. Y'all are getting married in how long? 19 days. And we've been, we've been talking together because I get to do your wedding. The waiting is like you're in that phase of, of waiting and being, being patient. Can we put that in quotes? Uh, Lindsay, how long until uh, baby Jaws is here? Do y'all know that Lindsay and Gavin are expecting a boy? Whenever I, we found out as a staff, I thought, oh, this is going to be an amazing Advent together. Yeah, so what? It's in May, right? And so every time, like every week, Lindsay will come to the office and she'll tell us the, the size of the baby based on some kind of piece of produce, right? <laughs> and this is the way that we mitigate our impatience is, okay, what's the next bit of news? What's the next bit of news? That's Advent. It makes sense it would be waiting for a child. Uh, but before we get to the story of Jesus or the story of Mary and Joseph, we're going to start even further back with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And so are you ready to hear this story again in all of its sass? Okay. We got to start with Herod. If you've got a Bible, you could open it up to Luke's gospel. This is the first chapter uh, in the New Testament. The New Testament is the second half of our Bible. It is not quite as uh, long as the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. It starts with Matthew. Uh, Matthew's Gospel or Matthew's story of Jesus' life, then Mark's version, and then Luke's version, and then finally John's version. So Luke is the third book of the New Testament. We are in chapter 1. You heard Mary's excellent reading. It starts off with, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. We've got to stop and figure out where we are in this story. So before we get to Jesus, before we get to the manger scene and Bethlehem and the angels and the sky and the shepherds and all the stuff we know from the children's pop-up books, there is this first story. And even before we get to the first bit of that story of Zachariah, this priest, and Elizabeth, his partner, his spouse, 
There is this mention of in those days, Herod was king of Judea. Okay, let's talk about Herod for just a moment because this is both just the way you tell a story, right? This is the way that ancient people would would mark time. So it was the right. It was the second year of uh, of President Trump's right reign. That would be the way we might tell the story right now. We would know where we are and when we are. Back then, it was the time when King Herod was in charge of Judea. We got to talk a little bit about who Herod was, though. This is Herod the Great. Uh, there are a couple of Herods that show up in the New Testament, and it's helpful to know which one we're talking about at which time. So this is Herod, the son of his father Antipater, uh, the father before. And this Herod becomes known as Herod the Great. Why is he known as Herod the Great? Well, he did a lot of really great things. Particularly, he built a lot of stuff. Herod is this ruler that is known as the King of the Jews. Does that sound familiar? The language of King of the Jews? Luke knows what he's doing here, by the way. He's setting up a bit of a conflict and an encounter. So you've got Herod the Great, the King of the Jews. And what... Herod's story is, is he is installed by the rulers of Rome. Rome has this really good program for how to keep this expanding empire together, to keep it from revolting at different areas, different edges of provinces. And one of the ways they do this is they install sort of like puppet kings that kind of share the history of the people who are being subjected. So Herod is kind of Jewish. He's got some of the family lineage, but he is deeply committed to the Roman way of life. And so Herod stands between the power center in Rome, Caesar, Augustus, the throne, and then the nation of Israel. Because there's this nation of ragtag Jews who just recently had gone about their own set of revolts known as the Maccabees. And that was... uh, Well, that was a bit of insurrection that ended in Israel being able to govern themselves for a season, but not for very long because Rome moves in and quashes them again, sets up Herod as their king. Herod is not very popular with the Jewish people, even though he does a lot of great things, uh, including building or rebuilding the second temple. So the temple is the most holy site that sits at the top of Jerusalem. It was destroyed centuries before, before the folks went into exile. And so Herod decides it's time to rebuild the temple, which is complicated. They're never quite sure how they're supposed to feel about Herod being in charge. So that's Herod the Great, king of the Jews. That's where this story gets started. Let me show you where all of this is happening. Herod, in the middle of all of his building projects, sets up his own capital called Herodium. Because if you're going to name a capital, you should name it after yourself. (laughs) Herod was not a humble man. Uh, So Nazareth is at the north, right? Nazareth is where Jesus' family comes from in the area of the Galilees. This is like the back country, the backwaters is Nazareth. If you go down, you can see Jerusalem right here. And just to the south of Jerusalem is Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem is where the census is taken. We'll get to that in a few Sundays. And then right underneath Bethlehem is Herodium. So all of this 
kind of geopolitical turmoil is concentrated all in this small little area in the world. It's been cooking for quite a while. That's Herod, and that's his legacy. And then we turn to this one couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Part of what the writer of Luke's gospel is doing is he's telling this huge story of history. And he tells it with the biggest players' names. Herod was king at the time. In the chapter, it's going to talk about Caesar Augustus. These are the big names. This is the big history. And then the writer will zoom in to these two insignificant people. This couple who's been yearning for quite some time. Zechariah, who comes from the lineage of Abijah, and Elizabeth, who comes from the lineage of Aaron. Now, Abijah and Aaron are priestly classes. These are, this is good stock. This is good family line. If you're going to be in the holy order, you want this kind of cred. And that's who they come from. And it says here, we need to hear this part. It says they were both righteous, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. Zechariah is serving in the temple. So we have this holy couple, this righteous couple, in the most righteous and holy of spaces, the temple. And Zechariah is praying, and the entire nation of Israel is waiting. That's the setting. It's supposed to be heavy with drama and anticipation. But for Zechariah, it's not exactly that. There is this story at the root of Zechariah and Elizabeth's life. There is this pain right in the middle of things. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are quite old. They are advanced in years. And they are the Kaios. They are righteous. It actually says that they are righteous and that they are blameless. The language for blameless in the Greek is that they lack nothing. Which is a really painful way to set up for what is said next. Which is that they are righteous but that they are steros. Which is the language of barrenness. Or sterile. Now, there is this understanding in the ancient world, and it carries on now still, that if you are good, if you are dikaios, if you are righteous, then you will be blessed. This is called the act consequence model of the world, and it is uh, deeply operative still. If something bad has happened to you, and the first question you ask is, why has this bad thing happened to me? What did I do to cause it? You are living inside of that world. It's a really normal way to understand reality. Good things happen, so, so I must have done something good, and if I've done something bad, then bad things might happen. So it makes no sense that we would have a dikaios couple who are also steros. It doesn't, it doesn't add up. It is the central tension. And the writer of this gospel is telling us with this small little fact from this kind of obscure couple, this big, big reality, which is that the universe is broken. That is the dominant reality in Israel at the time. For a long time, The people have been subjected to ruler after ruler after ruler and oppression and shame, never quite feeling at home, even in their own land. It is humiliating. 
And no matter how much they do what they're supposed to do, no matter how many times they say their prayers or they sacrifice or they keep the law, all 613 mitzvot, it doesn't matter. The situation does not seem to change. And you could talk about it on a national level. But the writer talks about it on the most intimate familial of levels. That there is something about the world that even if you are righteous, you still might come up short. And that is a nonsensical world to live in. Zachariah and Elizabeth feel that pain. They live that pain. They live that pain not just for themselves, but for all of Israel. They become stand-ins for the sterility, for the barrenness of the entire nation. They cannot birth their future. And so they are walking into death. That's the story. That's the setting. And so... It's not just that the universe is empty, but it's that the temple is empty. It's that the womb is empty. It's that all of these symbols are are meaningless, potentially. And so Zechariah is in the temple, is in this space. It's supposed to be full of the Lord's presence, and yet every time they pray, nothing happens. But this time, something does happen. Imagine for a moment if when Gavin was reading uh, our opening litany, and then Thomas, when you went to light this candle, if like, if I knew magic, I would have done this for sure. To sort of flash and there just be a figure here. I would have been, you would have been a little bit, you would have been impressed. You would have assumed, listen, we're close to Hollywood, they did some kind of trick. But that kind of stuff didn't exist back then. And so, Zachariah is in the temple. And here's how it would be set up. We've talked about the temple before. The temple is the most holy of spaces, but it's gradated holiness. So the center, the very deepest recesses of the temple is something called the Holy of Holies. And nobody goes in there save one person once a year. And there's this intense curtain that's drawn between the holiest place and then this kind of next holy realm. And right on the other side of the curtain from the Holy of Holies is something called the Altar of Incense. And hardly anyone gets to go to the Altar of Incense. You keep going out and you get to sort of like the Court of Women, the Court of the Gentiles, and then kind of the common areas. So we are really close to all of that energy. Zachariah is really close and he's lighting the incense. And the incense is this smoke that would rise and it would symbolize the people's prayers that would rise to heaven. Even as I'm sitting here, I've watched this candle kind of throw off smoke every once in a while and it, and it goes up and it helps us to understand that our prayers might reach God. So he's lighting the incense and he's supposed to be praying a specific kind of prayer, which is the redemption of the nation of Israel, that they would be free. It's a prayer of liberation. It's a prayer that will sound like calling forth the God who pulled them out of slavery so long ago from Egypt. That God would keep God's promises. That God would keep hope alive. That God would rescue his people. That's the prayer that Zechariah prays, not just for himself, but for everyone. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it. Let's read together. Once when Zechariah was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot. That's like throwing a dice and then you get chosen to do a thing. That would be really fun if that's how we still chose to do things. Take a lot of pressure off. (laughs) 
He's chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and to offer incense at the incense altar. Now, at the time of the incense offering, the whole rest of the priests, all the rest of the assembly, they were outside and they were praying too. This is intense. Then there appeared to him a messenger of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, which makes me wonder how long was that person standing there before Zechariah took notice. He was terrified and fear attacked him, the text says, which is normal. You and I would do the exact same thing. Trembling, terror, heart turns inside of you. And the angel messenger said to him, don't be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and the power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make a people prepared for the Lord. First of all, this messenger is long-winded because he talks a lot before Zechariah gets to get a word in edgewise. So he goes on and on. He tells Zechariah that his prayer has been heard. Now, again, the prayer is supposed to be for the entire nation of Israel. But maybe Zechariah had still risked the prayer that he really wanted to say, which was, please give me a future. Give me and my wife a child. So the angel shows up and says, God has heard you. God has heard your prayer. And then begins to tell him what the fulfillment of that prayer will be. And he says it in a way that makes sense of the beginning of this story. Herod was king of Judea at this time. And there's something about this very intimate familial prayer for a child that is going to shake the foundations of everything in the world. And the way we know is because it mentions the name of Elijah. Now, Elijah is this figure that stands tall in the memory of the people of Israel. They had this working theory that was sort of in the air at the time, which was that when Israel found themselves oppressed by a foreign power, and they had found themselves oppressed by foreign powers a lot over the years. It was Egypt, it was Babylon, it was Assyria, it was Alexander the Great, now it's the Romans. Like they've got practice at praying these kinds of prayers for for liberation. So there was this thought that at some point, the good old days would come back. Like that Israel would be great once again. And greatness for Israel was that they would get to go back to the time when David was king. Because when David was king, nobody could touch him. They were in charge of their own history, their own destiny, their own story. And so they yearned for that day to come back. And there began to develop this kind of tradition that said at some point, Elijah, the great prophet, is going to show back up. And when Elijah shows back up, you will know that the day of the Lord is about to arrive. And the day of the Lord is this language for when God is going to put everything right is going to vanquish those who are evil from the thrones and is going to set God's people back into power. The day of the Lord is good news if you are on the right side of history and it is terrible news if you are on the wrong side of history. The day of the Lord is this pregnant phrase that is carried throughout the prophets and when 
Elijah's name shows up, the day of the Lord is sparking in the background. And so when the angel says, Zechariah, you're going to have a child, and this child is going to be full of the spirit and power of Elijah, whoever is on the throne at the time should be nervous. Let me show you where this phrase shows up. The prophet Elijah. If you've got a Bible, you could turn back. I'm going to read for you what this angel is quoting. See, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them with neither root nor branch. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the teachings of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances that I commanded him at Sinai for all of Israel. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were righteous. And they were blameless in all of the law of Moses. You can hear how these stories are connecting and echoing back and forth. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and the terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. And so ends, in our ordering, the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures. That's the last bit of text before our Bible makes the turn to Matthew's Gospel. It's the last bit of prophecy before God goes silent for many years. And you see all the bits and pieces here. That this angel is calling forth. I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and that dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the children back to their parents. There was this thought that when God shows up in the day of the Lord, it's going to be great news. Because all of us who have been held captive by our oppressors will be freed. And so there was this yearning, this prayer for the day of the Lord to show up. Dangerous what you pray for. In other places, the prophets say, like, you ask for the day of the Lord. You cry for it. You yearn for it. But you don't realize that when the Lord comes, the Lord will come with a purifying kind of fire. And be careful you don't find yourself wanting. This is a precarious story indeed. This messenger has more to say. Zachariah Box, as you so well read, how am I going to know this is so? For I'm an old man and my wife's getting old in years. And the angel replies, I am Gabriel. As though it wasn't creepy enough that this figure appears next to the altar. It's like there's a second cloak on and the angel takes off that cloak. And it's like, surprise, not only am I an angel, I'm the, the like, biggest, most intense of the angels. It shows up only at times when the world is about to turn upside down. So if Zechariah wasn't comfortable before, he's definitely uncomfortable now. I stand in the presence of God. No one stands in the presence of God. If you stand in the presence of God, you get evaporated. We all know that. Unless your name is Moses. Unless your name is Moses. 
And only then you get to see like God's backside. And then you have to wear a veil the rest of the time, right? So that I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. That language of good news. Let's talk about it for a second. The word is euangelion, where we get the word evangelical from. It's also the same language as gospel. Gospel and good news, the same phrase. Uh, good news or euangelion, that is not first the church's language. In fact, a lot of the words that show up in the New Testament that we think are deeply meaningful are borrowed terms from what we would call the Roman imperial cult. So Rome had done this really smart thing where they had endowed their rulers with divinity. Turns out if you say that your king is a god, then when that king says to do something, everyone listens for fear of upsetting the gods. And so the language of good news uh, is political propaganda rhetoric. And here's what it meant. Uh, Whenever Caesar would sense a rebellion going on somewhere at the edges of the empire... Or they would go and they would conquer a new land. They would bring that land under Roman rule. They would set up there a certain kind of taxation system. They would bring an army in to keep any kind of rebellions down. And then they would send a crier through the streets in the capital. And that crier would scream out that there is good news from the provinces. There is a new gospel of Caesar. And... The good news is that Caesar has brought peace even further into the world. Something that we learned in grade school is Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. The Peace of Rome has a very specific flavor and texture to it. It is peace by subjugation, it is peace by war, and it is peace by power. That is Caesar's gospel. So, when the angel says... That I've been in the presence of the true God. And I've been sent to tell you this good news. Later on, we're going to hear this language of, of peace. The prince of peace. The savior of the world. All of this is borrowed language. Let me read for you just a couple of things. See if this sounds familiar. The most divine that we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into chaos and disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new era. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the beginning of the year. Can you feel? Can you feel what's happening here? He brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving us the Emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. Having become God manifest, that's the language of epiphany, that's also language we use all the time. Caesar has fulfilled the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news concerning him. That is the language of Roman propaganda. And so, when this small band of Jews starts to speak the language of imperial propaganda, but turns it, places it in the service of their own liberation, it is politically charged speech. Gabriel, and the writer of this gospel, is doing two things at once that are interrelated. 
is saying that somehow God has heard and will be responsive to this one family crisis. And in doing so, will somehow save the whole world. And that's just how this thing works. The very beginning, God shows up in an unexpected way, bursting forth from unexpected places. And this sets the tone for our expectation that Jesus the Christ might not show up with trumpet blasts and immediately take the throne, but sort of slips in through the back door. I love this. When the angel shows up, he gets this, I mean, he gives like such a long monologue of a speech. It's like he's a preacher. He doesn't know when to be quiet. He goes on and on and on and on. And then Zachariah asks the question that he knows he shouldn't have asked. And then Gabriel gets pretty frustrated and sassy. That's when Gabriel becomes this kind of sassy figure. Zachariah comes from the family of Abijah. His wife comes from the family of Aaron. Zachariah is in the temple, which is the holiest place, lighting the altar of incense, saying the prayers his people have been saying for a long time, calling forth the promises of God that have been going forth for decades and centuries. He's standing in the house of memories and he's forgotten everything. His question gives it away. How is this possible? Because I am old and so is my wife. How can you tell me that God is going to give us a child? Now, if anybody should know this story, it's Zachariah and Elizabeth. They are blameless. They are righteous. They've been keeping the commandments. And yet they forgot the way that their God has always acted. You could trace this back To the very beginning in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls forth to Abram and Sarah and says that from you, I'm going to make a great nation. Again, zooming in on one family and changing the world through that one story. Abraham and Sarah are old and they're without children and are having a hard time having children. That boat has sailed. And yet God says that the barren one We'll have a future. It's the same story over and over again. Samson's mother, barren, at a time when the surrounding nations were oppressing the Israelites and they needed a deliverer. They needed someone who could pull them out of their captivity. And so she's promised a child, Samson, who will neither drink wine, no strong drink, nor cut his hair, will be a Nazarite. Can you feel the resonance? Or Hannah, the mother of Samuel, at a time when there is no king over Egypt, and she can't have a child, and she is so sad, and she has been praying for so long. And then God hears and responds and sets history in a new direction. So why does Zechariah doubt? He knows this story. These are his people's stories. God has been working this way for a long, long time. He's just forgotten. What happens when our rituals become the wall that keep us from God? He was in the temple. He was offering 
the prayers and he was expecting nothing. And when something happens, he is terrified. And even when that something speaks and tells him about the future, he doubts. Because he had been going through the motions for a long time. The entire nation of Israel had been going through the motions for a long time. Have you felt that before? Like you show up week after week and pray the same prayer. God, would you please rid my family of anger? Help me to forgive my spouse. Bring my child home. Have you, you've prayed the same prayers over and over again. Please help me find work that is meaningful over and over and over. And nothing changes. At some point, you might keep praying, but you stop believing something could happen. I think about that as we came forward for communion. I mean, we do this once a month where we invite, in a visceral way, the Jesus story into our midst. We take it into our bodies. We eat Christ's death and promise of resurrection. We drink Christ's blood and the promise of forgiveness. And I wonder, do we know what we're doing? These rituals, are they doors or are they walls? Because for Zechariah, they had stopped working a long time ago. And yet... It is precisely in the midst of those routines and rhythms that have become second nature that God interrupts, that God breaks through. And this is what Advent is like. When we talk about Advent, we remember when God first broke into history in the person of Jesus. But we also anticipate what we would call a second advent or a second arrival when God will show up again in a decisive way and will set the world right. And so we live in between these two arrivals, praying that God would break into our world again. There is a lot happening that we could use some disruption around. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, well, actually Mike, Mike Kinman, who's the pastor just like a block and a half that way. Uh, and we met this week to pray together, and he was talking about uh, how much he needed and wanted to get to the border this week. And, and his language has been sitting with me. He said, the holy family is there, and they're being, and they're being gassed. The holy family is in need of a place to stay. And uh, I thought, what would it look like for God to break through in our world today? And that could be the big stuff, or it could be the small and intimate stuff of a family that's here that's just not been able to speak to one another in love and kindness in a long, long time. And the miracle of your life would be that you found grace and forgiveness again. And for God to break through would mean that you would have a heart that would melt again from stone and into flesh. We could all use God disrupting our lives. We don't have to be held back by this like sort of big 
Caesar, Herod kind of oppressor to feel ourselves oppressed, to feel ourselves held captive, to understand that the universe doesn't always make sense. And when this is our reality, that we pray and we pray and we keep the commandments and we try our best to do right by God and the situation doesn't change, we start to understand ourselves as broken. We start to understand ourselves as the problem. And that's a painful place to be. And that, that is the good news that is finally spoken in this story. Zechariah doesn't get to speak it. Because Zechariah doubts that God can do what God has always done. That God has power to continue to make the world whole. Zechariah forgot and Zechariah questions and Zechariah goes silent. No longer gets to speak. Is given this good news, the beginning of the story of the world made new. He could have been the bearer of this story, but instead has to be silent. But God's word will go forth and will come back with an answer. It will not stay silent. So Zachariah goes home and somehow he convinces Elizabeth that they're going to have a child and he can't talk. So I'm assuming that Zachariah's got some smooth moves, right? And it says in the way that only the Bible can say this stuff. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, he remained hidden. She says, she speaks. This is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me. When Zechariah prayed, God heard. Elizabeth says that even though she felt invisible and hidden, God saw her. And again, they're telling a story that's been told for generations. It's in the very beginning of the book of Exodus that the people cry out in their pain and in their distress. And the text says, and this is when everything turns, that God remembers. God remembers them. God looks down, hears their cries, sees them, and knows. God hears Zechariah, and God sees Elizabeth. And then this last bit. And God has removed my shame from among my people. What would it feel like? Take that that part of you that you've carried around, the part of you you're always trying to make up for, you're either trying to hide or you're trying to punish yourself because you feel of shame and disgrace. And what if it was just removed? God is about a new thing in this story. The first thing that happens is the people find their true identity, their true pride, their true name. And all of their shame is set as far as the east is from the west. Here is good news, friends. And this is good news that will shake the thrones. Whether the throne is in Rome or is in D.C. or is in your heart. 
God is on the way to rescue you from whatever darkness you were sitting in and whatever shame has you enveloped. Advent is the season where we tell this story again. And today I give thanks for the witness of Elizabeth who speaks the truth and Zachariah who could pray even if he couldn't believe. But may we believe, may we trust in this word that goes forth and will always find an answer. Would you pray with me? God, at this beginning of Advent, would you do a new thing again in a world that does not make sense? Would you remove from this congregation whatever splinters of shame have nestled into our lives, have become companions? Would you exile them and would you bring us home? And for these friends who feel themselves heavy, burdened with the world that has stopped making sense, would you turn the whole thing upside down? And God, would you give us the courage to speak a word that might even shake the foundations of power, of thrones, might even rattle the doors of death? And give us a clarity of speech, God, so that when we speak into this world, we speak your story. That we prepare for an encounter with you, for ourselves and for those we encounter. Be with us here and be with us as we head out into this world. We pray this name in the strong but in the quiet name of Jesus, amen.